0: Uh, Paul has been arguing that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And uh, that raises the question for Paul, why then the law? If we are pardoned and accepted by faith alone in Christ alone, why then the law? Uh, What's its purpose? What's it for? That is the question that we'll be thinking about uh, together today. Before I read passage please join me once again as we ask for the lord's blessing let's pray heavenly father thank you uh, for your word and we thank you that your word read and preached is a means of grace and so we recognize that the time before us is not merely a matter uh, of transferring information it's not merely for learning facts This is a time instead where we come to submit our minds and our hearts and our lives to your word. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work now and take the word and apply it to our lives. And, uh, Lord, bring people to faith and nurture us in the faith. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Uh, In 1520, Martin Luther was uh, officially condemned by uh, the Pope, by the Church of Rome, and by many others, and he was uh, commanded to stop preaching. And in response to that, Martin Luther wrote three books, or uh, three treatises, Uh, The third of them was uh, titled On uh, the the Freedom of the Christian Man. The Freedom of the Christian Man. And in that book, Luther made two propositions. Uh, First of all, the Christian is an utterly free man, lord of all, and subject to none. And second, the Christian is utterly dutiful, servant of all, and subject to all. I think it's the first of those two propositions that the Apostle Paul is defending in Galatians in general, and in this passage in particular, that the Christian is utterly free. I think one of the great theme verses in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 is where Paul writes, for freedom Christ has set you free. It's one of the foundational verses to this letter, for freedom Christ has set you free, Paul wants us to understand. Freedom from the the condemnation and curse of the law. Freedom from the laws of men. Freedom from the laws that the church would unlawfully impose. Freedom from the law as a means of finding acceptance with God. For freedom, Christ has set you free. But there were... Uh, These false teachers, these infiltrators who had come from Jerusalem into the churches of Galatia. And they were were deeply suspicious of Paul's message. And their their counter message said that it wasn't enough to put your faith in Jesus. You, You also needed to obey certain laws in order to be justified in order to be fully pardoned and accepted by God, in order to be counted right with God. You not only needed to believe in Jesus, you also needed to perform. And in this case, it was certain certain laws, like circumcision, uh, certain food laws, certain feast day laws, but the basic message was clear it wasn't enough to believe in jesus you needed to add something extra and it was their teaching of of faith plus some kind of work that led paul to ask the galatians some some questions you remember i I quoted the paraphrase of uh, philip's beginning in uh, galatians chapter 3 oh oh you dear idiot galatians who has bewitched you? You're not, you're not thinking this through. You've, you've forgotten the gospel. Let me ask you some questions. Go back to how you began the Christian life. How did you get started in all of this? Was it by the Spirit through faith? Or was it by works of the law? And of course, his implication is it was by faith. So now, beginning by faith, are you now going to, in and of yourself, press on And perfect yourself by works of the flesh. And then here are these Judaizers who are are pressing this teaching upon you. And they're all about the certain parts of the Old Testament. So so let's go back to the Old Testament for a second. Actually, let's go back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. Remember Father Abraham. How, How did things get started with Father Abraham? God Came to him and gave him a promise, and Abraham believed, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham believed God, he believed God's promise, he exercised faith, and God accounted him righteous. God counted him as a law keeper. And so, why then the law? You see, that's where Paul is going uh, logically here. He's anticipating. I think, of potential objections that these false teachers would raise in the church. If we are justified apart from works, if we are counted righteous apart from the law, if we are made right with God apart from works solely by faith in Jesus Christ alone, then why the law? What's its purpose? What's it, what's it for That's the question Paul asks in verse 19. And so, what I want to do today as we look at this passage is, I want us to think about it under two headings. And uh, we're not going to cover all the details here, but the big idea what the law cannot do and what the law does. Those are our our two headings for today. What the law cannot do, um, Paul is focused on in verses 15 through 17. And Here's, I think, what Paul wants us to understand. The law cannot undo the promise of God. The law cannot subvert the promises of God. The law cannot void the gospel. It cannot undo the promises of God. Whatever function the law does have, it cannot replace or subvert the gospel. So what he's saying to them is you you can't leave justification by faith alone in Christ behind. These, These false teachers suggested, just as some suggest today, that the gospel goes something like this. Okay, you start the Christian life by faith. You start the Christian life by trusting in God's promise, but then you complete it, you perfect it, you finish it by works. It's uh it's like the Holy Spirit is uh you know rockets you up into the air, and then you need to turn on your own booster engines to get to the final destination. The start is God, the completion is you. That was the message of, of the Judaizers. And Paul is combating that mindset, and that says, You begin by the Spirit and you are perfected, and you finish by the flesh. And so after appealing to Abraham in the Old Testament, Paul now gives us an example in verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, uh, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, if you're reading from the ESV like I did, then that Greek word diatheke is translated with the word covenant. Now, there are some, uh, some of you might know this, there are some who say, that perhaps what Paul has in view here is not so much a covenant as a a last will and and testament. And there are books and dissertations and journal articles uh, galore to read about that discussion. If it's a last will and testament, then there are some options. Is Is it a Roman last will and testament or is it a Greek last will and testament? If it's a Greek last will and testament, then what Paul is saying is once... Once the agreement was laid out, once the testament was signed and registered, it could not be amended, it could not be adjusted, it could not be annulled. To illustrate uh, that particular view, I came across the story uh, during the week of, uh, of a lady who, who, uh, who died, and before she died, she, uh, she left all of her assets, all of her property to, to a Christian university. And uh, well, when her children found out, her children lived on the other side of the country, they were, they were furious uh, that their mother left them out of her her will. So furious, uh, in fact, that the children came together and they contested her will in, uh, in a court of law. Now, they failed. They didn't get what they wanted. Um, but they tried to argue that the will only applied to her personal effects, not to her property but the judgment of the court was it's set in stone this can't be amended this can't be changed this can't be revoked especially once someone has died there can certainly be no change to this last will and testament that could be one reading of what Paul is trying to get at here but Paul I think does in fact have uh, man-made covenants and God's covenants in, in view, and the point is that God's promise, His word of promise, can never be broken. It can never be revoked. It can never be annulled or added to once it has been ratified. And Paul is saying, if that's true of man-made covenants, then how much more is that true of the covenant God made with His people? With God, with God made. With Abraham. His word is utterly trustworthy, utterly reliable. So I think the ESV is, is right to render this covenant because while well, he goes on to talk about God's covenant with Abraham, uh, the NIV translation I think brings this out clearly. If, just listen to the language of the NIV, verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, that has been duly established, so it is in this case. What, what case? The case of God making a covenant with Abraham and his offspring. In Genesis 12 and ratified in Genesis 15. So you remember in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham land and offspring and, and blessing. And, and uh, he also promised in that, in that section of Genesis That Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars of the night sky, as the sand of the seashore. And that through his offspring, the nations of the world would be be blessed. And then in Genesis 15, God, God ratified that covenant. The covenant which ultimately is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul draws that out in this passage, doesn't he, in verse 16. It's a seemingly obscure point that Paul makes in verse 16, but it has massive, massive implications. He says, now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it doesn't say offsprings plural, referring to many, but particularly it refers to offspring in the singular. Who is that offspring? Christ. You see what Paul is making clear here. Paul is saying in other words. The promise was to Abraham and his offspring. Singular. God had someone in particular in mind when he made these promises. The covenant promises. Another way of putting it. The covenant promises were made to Christ. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. The true seed. Now. This word for offspring, uh, Paul's making a big deal out of the ending of a noun. If you've ever looked at this, it's a collective noun. In other words, while the word is in the singular, it can also refer to, to a plurality. And Paul knew that. He knew that because he uses the word in that very sense later on in this chapter when he says, if you are in Christ, then you are the offspring of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. you are a joint heir with Abraham in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm tempted to just stop and preach a sermon on verse 16. That's really what I wanted to do as I was thinking about it this week, but it'd take us uh, astray from what I want us to focus on today. But let me just mention one one side point here before we, we move on because I, I think if we really take in what Paul is saying here, it completely dismantles the way many American evangelicals have been reading their Bible for the last 100 years or so. And many many people in uh, evangelical church, whether they know it or not, uh, have have been taught what's known as, as dispensationalism. Now I'm painting in really broad strokes here. But dispensationalism basically says that God has two people. Ethnic uh, Jews, descendants of Abraham, and, and Gentile Christians. God has two people, and God has two plans. He has a distinct plan for physical ethnic Israel, descendants of Abraham, and God has another spiritual plan for the Gentile church. God got started with his plan for Israel in the Old Testament, but now that plan is on pause. Right, there's this kind of parenthesis in, in history, and right now God is fulfilling his plan for the Gentile church. And at the end of the age, when the Gentile church is raptured up into heaven, God's going to come back to his plan for the Jewish people. And those promises given to Abraham and expanded on in the Old Testament will be fulfilled literally, physically, in the nation of Israel, I think if you read Galatians chapter 3 and you recognize that the apostles are the interpreters, God's inspired interpreters of the Old Testament, we've got to say, no, 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 no. That was not the, the intended meaning of Genesis chapter 12 and the promises ratified in Genesis chapter 15. What does Paul say? If you are in Jesus Christ... You can claim the very same promises that Abraham claimed for himself when he believed God. You are the offspring. You are the true children of Abraham, Paul will say. Now That's a, that's a side point. But let's, so let's go back here and uh, think about this covenant and its promises which were, were ratified in Genesis 15. Abraham was to, to take those animals and, and uh, divide them in half, as we read the account. And this is the way that covenants were, were confirmed. They were ratified at that time. You remember how it worked. The two covenant parties, the representatives of the party, the animals would be divided and they would pass between the pieces. And it was a, a visual way of saying, should I break this covenant oath? Should I break this covenant agreement? Let me be as these animals. Now what happened with Abraham? As we read the story, a deep, deep sleep came upon Abraham and there's Abraham laying over there on the ground after the animals are divided. And we, we read about a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing through the two pieces. It was a, it was a, it was a giant visual aid for Abraham. And God was saying... These are my promises. This is my covenant with you, Abraham. Let me be as these animals if I fail to keep my word. It was a self-maledictory oath. God was uh, saying, if I fail to keep my covenant promise, let me be accursed. His word was given. His promises were made. His covenant could not be broken. It could not be annulled. That's what that was meant to tell Abraham. And then the law came 430 years later in the time of Moses. Paul's point, I think, is that the law coming 430 years later cannot annul the promise that was given to Abraham and his seed. In other words, God isn't saying in the Old Testament that in the time of Abraham, it was all faith. It was by faith. And now in Moses' time, it's by works and law. That's not what the message of the Old Testament is. By the way, that's a a key for reading our entire Bible if we understand the relationship of God's promise and God's law. But now, I think Paul, here's what I want you to see. I think Paul is also speaking in terms of Christian experience. Not just the history of the Old Testament, but I think he's drawing out implications for Christian experience. Because we receive forgiveness and are accepted by God through faith alone in Christ. And we're justified by faith alone. And my friends, we have to be absolutely crystal clear about this. It's it's not as though we begin by faith and then we finish it by works. We don't begin by the Spirit and finish by the flesh. Uh, It's not like uh, the gospel is... Maybe this is a bad illustration, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's not like the gospel is... uh, picture of us on a bicycle, right? And and God uh, sets us on the bicycle and then gives us some training wheels, gets us going, and then once we're going, he takes off the training wheels and then leaves it all up to us. That is not how the gospel works in our lives. The promise was given to Abraham, and my friends, at the heart of that promise was the promise of Jesus. The full provision of God in the gospel and the law cannot undo justification by faith. The law cannot undo your right standing with God through faith in Christ. So it's not acceptance with God by faith and then sanctification by works. By your own works, by your self-reliant works. The law cannot undo the promise. There's, there's a little statement for you to chew on. For the rest of today and for the rest of your life. The law cannot undo the promise. What's Paul saying? Look to the promise. Look to God's word. God's promise of blessing in Christ received by faith alone. Because that promise cannot be annulled. It cannot be revoked. It's fixed and firm. And so the law cannot undo the promise. But then uh, he tells us what the law does. Uh, In verses nineteen through twenty-four, it's going to take Paul, I think, to at least I think it's verse twenty-two to actually get to his answer. But Paul has argued that God's promise it's received by faith, apart from the law. So the question comes up: What's the law all about? What? Why then the law? What's the purpose of the law? As we're thinking about the Reformation. Uh, let me just mention this, the, in the Reformation they talked about the three uses of the law, the three purposes of the law. They talked about the, uh, the, 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 the law as a pedagogue, and that's the use that Paul is talking about here in Galatians 3, so we'll come to that in just a moment. They also talked, though, about the, the civil use of God's law, the, the use of the law for, for civil society, the rules and regulations of an, an orderly society are rules and regulations that are framed by, by the moral law of God. Now, of course, although the law can't change the heart, uh, a society guided by God's law will, in terms of Romans 13, reward what is good and punish what is uh, evil. And that, you know, that brings a certain order to a society, and it also brings a certain restraint upon uh, societal sins. Of course, what we're seeing is the the rapid departure from the moral norms that we find in, in God's law. But the Reformation also talked about a third use of the law, even the proper use of the law, which is the use of the law for the Christian, the, the, those who, whose hearts have been renewed, those who have been born again by the Spirit, and those who, who want to love God. The law is placed in the hands of the Christian as a, as a guide for a life of love. The Christian life is patterned after the Ten Commandments of, of God. But the focus here is the first use. Paul will get to the third use, and by the way, later on in Galatians, and give many, many lists uh, to Christians of what we should and should not do. But here his focus is upon the first use. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? And he says it was added because of transgressions. There is a a sense in which uh, the law only multiplies and magnifies our sin and failure and inability and bondage. In verse 22, he talks about Scripture, referring specifically to the law, but the, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Right? There's a sense also in which when the law comes and exposes it exposes our sin and our failure and our total inability and I think Paul is also saying to us, when the law comes, there's a sense in which it, it, it incarcerates. It, it imprisons us. You know, the assumption of people in society today is that obligation implies ability. Right? Isn't that how people often think? If you're obligated to do something, then you must have the ability to do it. Otherwise, you're not obligated to do that thing. Christianity, the Bible comes and it takes that idea and it turns it on its head. Because the law of God comes to us and and we can't do it. The law says don't do that and we do it. The law says do this and we can't do it. And that's part of the the frustration of it all. That we cannot keep the law of God. Uh, And when the law came, I think Paul is again speaking historically here. But I want you to see how there's also, at least in an analogous way, this is also talking about his own experience and the experience of many people. Listen to how Paul speaks in Romans chapter 7. In verses 7 and 10, he says, Should we say then the law is sin? No, no, absolutely not. By no means. If if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And you see what Paul is talking about there? He's talking about his own experience. He's talking about his life before he became a Christian, before he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I was alive. I felt alive. That's how he felt. I was was full of moral virtue and moral effort and moral power. And then the law came and it convicted him. It exposed him. It shut him up. It incarcerated him. That's what Paul is saying. It showed him that he couldn't do what the law required. That he was a lawbreaker. It showed him his his inability, his utter wretchedness, and demonstrated that Paul could not justify himself. So when the law came, he died. He was was once alive, full of life and vigor. And my friends, that's how how many uh, unbelievers might appear and feel themselves. They're not all... Gloom and doom—they—they might feel fully alive as those who have moral virtue and moral power. But then, when the law comes and shows them their utter inability and shows them their need, (coughs) declares their depravity, it exposes and even provokes sin. Paul says, kind of like I I think an illustration here would be the rich young ruler. You remember when he came to Jesus and said, "Teacher, what must I do to inherit?" eternal life. And what did Jesus do? He, he, uh, he used the first use of the law, didn't he? He pointed the rich young ruler to the Ten Commandments and said, keep the, keep the commandments. Well, I've done that from my youth, he said. Right? He, he thought he was alive. He thought he was full of moral virtue and moral ability and moral power, and that was precisely his problem. At Paul, Going back to Paul, uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 3, talks about his life before he became a Christian. He says, As to zeal, persecutor of the church, concerning righteousness under the law, blameless. That's how he viewed himself. That's how he felt, blameless. I was alive once, then the law came, and it exposed me, it imprisoned me, it shut me up, and it hemmed me in. And so you see, my friends, the law was not given As a new way of getting right with God. That was was not its purpose. The law is not contrary to the promise. The law is not contrary to the promise. Because the law serves an entirely different purpose. It wasn't given to give life. Verse 21. For if the law had been given that could impart life. Then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. I think we could, we could put it this way. God did not give us the law as a way for us to get right with God. God gave the law to show us that we are not right with him. And then in verses uh, 22 through 24, Paul goes on to use two illustrations that explain the purpose of the law. Right? Paul finally gets to his answer, why then the law? And here's my summary of it. purpose of the law is to drive us to Jesus Christ. The purpose of the law is to lead us to the Savior. The law was given to drive us to Christ. Now the first illustration, think here of, this may be a bit anachronistic, but think of a prison system. Okay, verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. I want you to think here of somebody under protective custody. I think that really illustrates what Paul is talking about here. They're being held for their own good. That's the purpose of protective custody. It's a form of imprisonment that is actually for the good of the one who is imprisoned. And this is what Paul is saying. The law puts us in protective custody, refusing to let go of us until it hands us directly over to Jesus Christ. Now Paul, of course, is talking about Israel in the Old Testament. He's saying they were kept under the protective custody of the law throughout the Old Testament period. Life in the Old Testament. Life for Israel post Mount Sinai was a life imprisoned by God's law. Every aspect of life was held captive by the law of God. Imprisoning everything in sin. Until Christ came and sets us free. You see, and and while Paul is making that historical point, you see again how that, I think, has a parallel experientially because the law still functions that way, doesn't it? The law, it imprisons us. It holds us captive. It exposes sin in every area of our lives in order to lead us into the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. Paul then uses a second illustration to to show us that the law was given to, to drive us to Christ. He says the law acts as a pedagogue or as a guardian, as it's translated here in verse 24. Take a look at it with me. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, A guardian in Roman and Greek culture was somebody that a family hired... to to care for, to train, and to discipline their son. And the pedagogue, or the guardian, was, was with the child from childhood up through adolescence until they entered into adulthood. They went with them everywhere. The pedagogue was with them throughout the day, and the pedagogue had the authority to direct and to discipline the child for the purpose of leading them in the direction that they wanted uh, the child to go. Uh, it, 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 as I was thinking about this, it made me think of, um, uh, we used to have Australian cattle dogs, who, and I miss them very much. Right now we just have a big dumb ball of fur. Uh, but she's great. She's good with kids, so she's got that going for her. But we had, uh, we had one Australian cattle dog named Sydney, and... Uh, uh, my brothers-in-law, we'd go outside and the three of them would, would take off running in the yard in different directions, okay? And I would hold on to Sydney until maybe 15 seconds later, I'd let her go. And the instinct kicked in and she went after each of them, trying to, to hem them in, to direct them to where she wanted them to go. And if you didn't go where she wanted you to go, you paid the price. <laughs> you were disciplined, And she hemmed them in uh, until she got them exactly where she wanted them. And you see what Paul is saying about the law of God. The purpose of the law of God is to hem us in in every part of our lives. And to drive us to Jesus Christ. So there's only one place left to go. And that's Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying By the law as our guardian to lead us to Christ. So, my friends, what does the law do? Well, Paul has really emphasized what the law cannot do. It cannot annul the promise. The law cannot give life. The law cannot justify. But the law can drive us to Jesus, who did keep the law. The law can drive us to faith in Christ alone as our only hope. But here's the thing, this is is the finer point of this passage. The law drives us to Jesus Christ, not just for our justification. That's, I think, Paul's big point in this passage. We don't just go to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and acceptance with God, and then it's up to us to perfect the rest. Uh, you know, justification by faith and now sanctification by works of the law, works of the flesh. What I want to say to you, to your brothers and sisters, is the law cannot justify you and the law cannot sanctify you. Yes, I, I said the law cannot sanctify you. Now, do not misunderstand me. Yes, the law of God is a means that the Holy Spirit uses to grow us in grace and to conform us to the likeness of Christ but if we go to the law of God by our own moral virtue by our own power by our own strengths in order to try to earn it and be good enough for God my friends we're going to fail it's the way of destruction and ruin and so Paul is saying that you know there is this notion that we as Christians sometimes fall prey to that we're justified by faith and then we We're sanctified by our own efforts. It's all our doing. We're justified by by grace and sanctified by works of the flesh. And what I want to say to you, dear friends, that's deadly, deadly stuff. It's the way of ruin and death. Gospel obedience is not self-reliant obedience. It's not obedience rendered for the purpose of self-perfection or to obey the law we're to walk in the Spirit, we're to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, we're to exert effort and, and so on. But we do so by the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit and in union and communion with Jesus Christ because apart from that, we can't do anything. We can't do anything at all. And Paul wants us, therefore, to be rid of the view that says we begin the Christian life by faith and then we perfect our Christian life by works by the flesh and uh, and so we come back to the question what's the purpose of of the law I know what some of you are doing right now some of you are running miles ahead of us and you're thinking okay then what is the role of the law in the Christian life what is the role of the law in sanctification hold on we'll get there we're going to get there as we study Galatians together but that's not Paul's concern here Paul's concern in this passage, his real point, is that real obedience is not our obedience solely. It is only because we're in union and communion with Christ and the Spirit lives in us that we can do anything at all. It's only because a promise has been made by God that cannot be annulled. And that is our hope. That is our security in the Christian life. So... As I said I said this last week I think I don't want us to go away here thinking well this you know Galatians and this section of Galatians really it's it's addressed to unbelievers no 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 it's not Brothers and sisters this passage is directed right at us as believers in in the Lord Jesus Christ you who come this morning weighed down by your sin you know you you you've sinned you've fallen short you've you fail to do the things that you've promised to do and, and it's weighing on you. And that tendency toward Phariseeism is there. And the, the voice within us says, I got started by grace, but I got to finish this by works. My friends, God wants to write upon our hearts today that the law Cannot annul the promise. And the law drives us to Jesus Christ, where we find forgiveness and empowerment by the Holy Spirit to walk in faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that the law uh, drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that life is found on the basis of a promise that you have made to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as Abraham's offspring, we would would trust in your promise, that we would live according to your promise. And we thank you for your law, as painful and sore as it may be, for the way that it exposes our sin. And it continues to do that and drive us each and every day to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our trust is in him. And Lord, I pray, if any, are here today who have not been driven and hemmed in by your law to Christ. Lord, take your law and do that work in their lives today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.